So good evening, everybody. <laughs> okay. So we're going to uh, start with some of our usual prayers uh, this time and a little bit of silent meditation and then create, generate our, uh, our motivation. So remember to visualize the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the space in front of you, yourself surrounded by all sentient beings. Let's generate our motivation. And considering that we have been studying about samsara, when we think of other living beings, remember that they are samsaric beings. And don't expect them to be perfect. Don't expect them to be free of afflictions. Don't expect them to always do what you like or think what you think is right. Accept that they're under the influence of karma and afflictions. And at the same time, they've been incredibly kind to you and your life depends on them. So put this all together in how you view sentient beings. And in this way, we can have compassion for them. And we can similarly extend compassion towards ourselves, seeing that we are in the same boat as others. So not expecting ourselves to be beyond samsara. Although we are doing our best to go in that direction, so that's not an excuse for laziness. But to realize, you know, what our situation is and accept that and go forward with optimism in the same way that we accept sentient beings where they're at and go forward with optimism and see their kindness. This way, generate bodhicitta, aspiring for full awakening, and seeing 
that what we're doing this evening is one more drop in the bucket of creating the wisdom, compassion, and skill necessary for Buddhahood. Okay, so to let you know where we are, last Friday night in this class, we finished volume two. And then, no, the last, the, before the last one, we finished volume two. Then the last Friday night was the beginning of the course on samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature. So that Friday night, we started volume three and went through that in the course over the next uh, six days. And then I had a talk scheduled for uh, Vajrayana Institute in uh, Sydney, Australia, and the title was Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. This was arranged months ago for tonight uh, and tomorrow. So what I did when I had the talk tonight is I started where we had left off at the end of the course, which was on page 47 with the three types of dukkha. So if you weren't here for the talk that I just gave and finished about a half an hour ago, you can listen to it on our YouTube archives, right? Yeah. So in that talk, we got from page 47 to 52, 50, top of 53. And that's where we'll continue on from now, the top of page 53. And then however far we get tonight, we will start from there tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock Pacific time. And you can sign on and listen to the next talk in this series tomorrow. Yeah, 4 o'clock Pacific. What time Australian? 9 o'clock Australian. Okay, so what is that? 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock Singapore in the morning. Yeah, you can do it, you can do it. And uh, and then we'll take up from there. And then next Friday night, we'll come back and we'll take up from there. So we'll get everything in order. It's just where you sign up to get it. Okay? So it's not that difficult. Okay, so we're on the, uh, page 53. We... Uh, just got done talking about the three kinds of dukkha and the six disadvantages of samsara. Yeah, and now the eight unsatisfactory conditions. So you see more lists of <laughs> these things, and again, the Buddha's hitting us with it again and again so that we will get motivated to do something about our situation and attain a state of lasting happiness. So, 
In describing true dukkha in his first teaching, the Buddha said, Now this, monastics, is the Arya truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Union with what is displeasing is dukkha. Separation from what is pleasing is dukkha. To not get what one wants is dukkha. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. So if somebody asks you to write a CV, uh, you write this verse. Okay, this is the CV of your life. Yeah, and it's the CV of whosoever life you're writing the it for, okay? So, it is not difficult to make examples of these eight in our lives, for they describe much of what we experience on a daily basis. For many people, being able to acknowledge the presence of these unsatisfactory conditions in their lives is a relief. They no longer feel, quote, quote, something is wrong with me. But they know that all ordinary beings have these experiences. They see these events as part of life, not as punishments or failures. Yeah, this is important. Um, especially when we get to the one about death is dukkha or illness is dukkha. Sometimes people blame themselves and think that the fact that they got sick is their fault. The fact that they're dying means they're failing. Yeah. Sometimes people will get mad at their relatives who are sick. You know, you're dying now. Listen, I, I need you to live some lo longer. I don't want to, you know, I don't have financial security. Don't you die on me? And they'll get mad. And uh, sometimes people, if they believe in God, they'll think uh, sometimes, you know, God is mad at them or they failed God and that's why they're dying. So people will often uh, create all sorts of um, conspiracy theories to attack themselves with, all sorts of wrong views to blame themselves for um, things that are just, simply part of samsara, and there's no way of avoiding it. In other words, once we're born, then, you know, this is what is going to happen. And there's no sense blaming ourselves or feeling like we're a failure or whatever. This is just uh, the nature of samsara. Now, you might not want to hear that it's the nature of samsara because we keep trying to tweak our samsara. And we think if we can just find the right thing to tweak, then everything will turn out fine and we'll live happily ever after. But, you know, Snow White and Cinderella are still there waiting around for all that to happen and it, it hasn't happened. Okay. Yeah, we get fed a lot of junk when we're kids, yeah? Okay. At the beginning of our lives, we are born. 
coming out of the womb into a new environment is physically painful for the child as well as the mother. Okay. We usually think of birth as so exciting and such a wonderful thing. Yeah, everybody's excited when there's a new child born into the family. Uh, but actually, when we look at it, you know, the experience for the mother of bearing the child and giving birth, they, they call it labor for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> it's because they say it's the hardest work you're ever going to do. Uh, my mother said after she had me, she's glad that she forgot what it was like, otherwise she wouldn't have had my brother. <laughs> yeah. In those days, they, they, the men weren't allowed in the, in the rooms. The women were there by themselves. It was her first child, long labor. My dad's out bowling. She's, she's holding on to the, the side rails of the, of the bed because it hurts so much. So it, it's called labor for a reason, okay? And she said, wait till you have kids. You talk me out of it, Mom. <laughs> um, but it's also painful for the baby, yeah, because the baby's in one environment, then it has to get squeezed through this narrow channel, and it comes out the other end, and the air's cold, and it's a whole different vibe, and the first thing they do is hang you upside down by your feet, whack your bottom, you know? So, welcome to the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, can you imagine being an infant newly born? You're so confused. Yeah, you just went through the bardo. You had no idea what was happening to you. You see attractive things, you run towards those, then they change into unattractive, you know, then you find yourself in another body, and what is this thing? And, you know, your mother, exercises, she goes jogging, and you're going, <laughs> you know, and then she eats some chili pepper, and you're going, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and then the contractions start. Yeah. And I don't think they would feel like a massage. It's, you know, it's like, time to get out of here, kid. And, you know, and then you get pushed out. And you have no idea where you are. You don't know who you can trust. You don't know what's going on. Because you don't have all those conceptual abilities. Yeah. So it's just you're, you're having all these physical sensations with no understanding. Yeah. And I think it can be pretty scary for a, a newborn. Yeah. Okay, at the end of our lives, we die experiencing suffering mentally, if not physically. So some people, uh, they don't experience physical pain. Some people have physical pain, but you can't see it, you know, because the different um, winds in the body have absorbed, so the body doesn't react. Okay. Um, some people experience mental pain, 
when they're dying because they're leaving everything and everyone. So, you know, we've spent our whole life constructing an ego identity. Yeah, a whole, our whole life. This is who I am. This is what I like, what I don't like. I'm this person's mother, father, sister, brother, you know, lover, whatever. This is my career. This is what I attain. This is what people think of me. I, 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 I. And then the body loses the ability to support consciousness and your whole identity is gone. Because our identity is dependent on the body, on the mental aggregates, and on this whole environment. We created an identity, you know, in terms of this environment. Yeah. And now that environment's going. So, you know, and your mind's off into another situation. And, you know, where you graduated from college, if you went from graduate, if you went to college or not, who you are, what you like, you know, how many people clicked you on Facebook as a friend, none of that matters. You know, the whole situation you're going into, it has a totally different conceptual framework and you don't know what it is. Yeah. And they don't talk English. And you don't talk English either. You're just like, you know. Have you ever been on a, a, a long plane ride and arrived in another country where you've never been before and they don't know your language, you don't know what's going on there, it's the middle of the night And you're gone. Uh, now what? Yeah. And that's nothing compared to what happens when we're, we're born again. Because at least there, you know, we knew we took a plane ride. We're arriving in the middle of the night. And, you know, we have a little bit of knowledge, but you still feel like, you know, where am I? So between uh, death and birth, and between birth and the next death, uh, there's aging, well, actually it's between birth and the next death, um, there's aging and illness, which are also undesirable experiences. Okay, so we're going to get sick. And you don't need a fortune teller to tell you that. You know, you just have to have a body like this, and then you know you will get sick. Okay? And you will age. All you need is a body like this that is impermanent by nature. Aging is a given. Yeah. And I don't care how many beauty products you look, you buy, and how much everybody around you talks about, you know, reshaping their bodies to make yourself look young, it's not going to happen. Nobody is getting younger. Nobody. Yeah? I mean, in the last week, we've seen so many pictures of Princess Elizabeth 
when she was young, and Queen Elizabeth now, and Prince Philip when he was young, and Prince Philip before he died. Yeah, they don't look much alike, the younger versions and the older versions. Yeah. And that aging process is right there, you know, it's, it's happening. And with age, not only is the body aging, you know, but if you live long enough, you know, you may get Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, that's real fun, isn't it? Yeah. Who are you? I don't recognize any of you people. What am I doing here? Sometime that's going to happen at the beginning of a teaching, you know. And it won't be playing. It'll be serious. You know, either that or you die first. A few people don't get dementia or Alzheimer's. A few people don't. But, you know, if you really live a really long time, so you have to, you know, in that aging process, you just have to let go of any attachment to your reputation. Yeah, how you look in front of other people, what they think of you, you just... You can't hold on to it because you have no ability to uh, put forth your good side and impress people anymore. <laughs> That's totally gone. Yeah. Some people may remember uh, Miriam, who was one of our members at Dharma Friendship Foundation, an older woman. And she was charming. She was so lovely. And she was old, very active, mind worked fine. And then she got dementia. And when you talked with her afterwards, as her daughter put it, she's on one time zone now. Past, future. And here was... Miriam, you know, we used to, she used to cook for some of us. We went to her house and, you know, talked over lunch. And she was always so kind to everybody at the center and very motherly towards all the young ones and everything. And then all of a sudden, she's, it seemed like it happened very quickly, you know. And she was, yeah, very, very different. But she was a very pleasant person when, even as, uh, as somebody with Alzheimer's. Some people with Alzheimer's uh, get very mean. Yeah, that kind of side of them comes out. That didn't happen with her, fortunately. Okay, so on top of aging and illness, which we don't want, uh, okay, on top of these, problems, which we don't want, come uninvited. 
Okay, We exert great effort to have conditions that bring happiness, but our efforts are not always successful. Yeah? You really want to have, when we change rooms, you really want to have a certain room, and you try and make it so that you'll have that room, and so-and-so will be your roommate, and you can't get it, or you get it, and then it's noisy, and you know, other people live in that building. Imagine that, and they make noise. Ugh. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're on the kitchen team, and you think, now, finally, for four months, we can have some good food, because I'm in charge. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So even when we do find um, good circumstances, they change. Yeah. <laughs> you, fi you finally build a new building. Yeah, so everybody's not crammed together in the old building. And, you know, now everybody has offices and bedrooms instead of your office and your bedroom being the same place and, and the dining room and the and the... Uh, meditation hall being the same place and you know instead of all of that yeah then what happens yeah then something breaks yeah uh, you, you can't stay in that room or you you know it's too noisy or the you know the turkeys are yapping right outside even though you, you chase them away you know I mean, look at, and look at our minds. Every small thing can disturb us. I mean, I know I make ridiculous examples, but ridiculous examples are what we com complain about most of the time. Yeah, I'm trying to meditate, and these turkeys don't shut up. Yeah, why are they making so much noise? Well, at least that time you're not complaining about the person who next who sits next to you in the hall who's breathing too long, loud, you know. It's a little bit better. Instead of, you're breathing too loud, stop breathing. <laughs> yeah. So even when we do find good circumstances, they change and we have to separate from what we like. Or we are disappointed because they don't bring the enduring happiness we expected. You know, finally, Buddha boy or Buddha girl showed up. Finally. You know, they left their white horse behind. That's okay. But they finally showed up. And now, everlasting happiness. And every one of us has had that experience, and it is not happening right now. Why? Because it ended. Because it doesn't last. Okay? And we were disappointed, or we were hurt, or whatever. Clearly, this situation is unsatisfactory. Our human potential must involve more than just experiencing this. So we have... Human intelligence, we're quite fortunate. And yet, if all we do is just keep paddling in samsara, trying to keep our head above ground, above water, 
but we don't make any effort to get out or or to improve our situation, um, then that's really sad. Our five aggregates are subject to clinging, uh, that are subject to clinging, are in the nature of dukkha. They are a container in which past karma ripens. Yeah? Negative past karma we, that we created, if it's negative, how's it going to ripen in this body as pain, illness, aging, okay? How's it going to ripen in our mind? Situations we, we don't like, depression, despair, anger. Okay, so our five aggregates produced by f- afflictions and karma are the container in which past karma ripens, and we generate more afflictions in reaction to the ripening of the previous karma. We get attached or jealous or whatever and create more karma. The body in particular is the basis for aging, sickness, and death. Clinging to our present aggregates, our mind generates more afflictions. I want my body to look like this. I want to live in a certain environment. I want to be a certain kind of person. And we generate lots of afflictions, which create more karma, which causes future rebirth, as well as pain and dissatisfaction during those lives. For example, being angry at our present problems We may steal, lie, or criticize others to remedy the present problems, okay? Uh, Creating the karma to have more misery in the future. Or clinging to worldly success in this life habituates us with this mental state, setting the stage for it to, to increase in future lives. So that since we're young, we always want worldly success, reputation, acknowledgement. You know, we're like a a hungry ghost craving for these things. In short, the aggregates are the basis in which the three, six, and eight types of dukkha run rampant. Contemplating this deeply leads to the arising of a clear and powerful intention to renounce the bondage of samsara and to seek the freedom of nirvana and Buddhahood. Okay, and the next section is examining true dukkha via 10 points. So we had three, six, eight, now 10. Yeah. So in the Shravaka Bhumi, Asanga speaks of the four attributes of true dukkha. You remember those? What are they? First one? Impermanence. Dukkha. Empty. Selfless. Okay. So he speaks, Asanga speaks of the four attributes of true dukkha by way of ten points. Points 1 to 5 pertain to impermanence. Point 6 to 8 to dukkha. Point 9 to emptiness. And point 10 to selflessness. Okay, so first one. To understand the impermanence of change. That is, coarse impermanence. 
we must examine changes that are easy to observe. Our bodies are born and die. Our health, appearance, and physiques may suddenly change as a result of injury or illness. Yeah, everything in our environment, trees, buildings, cities, and all the objects we use, food, transportation, buildings, medicine, and clothing, likewise are consumed or destroyed. The fleeting character of our, of our happy, suffering, and neutral feelings and the swiftness by which our thoughts change from one moment to the next are also examples of course change. Yeah, all around us, everything's just changing. I mean, a half an hour ago, we weren't sitting in this room. Well, we were. How about an hour ago, we weren't sitting in this room. Yeah, so everything's changing that quickly. The objects we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch and think about all change, as do the cognitive faculties in our body that enable us to apprehend them, and the, the uh, consciousnesses that, you know, cognize these objects, everything, the object, the sense faculty, the consciousness, they're all changing. Meditating on this in depth, leads us to understand that all conditioned things are unstable and unreliable and therefore cannot bring us true satisfaction. Okay. Now somebody's going to raise their hand and say, but the Buddha's mind is impermanent. And that's true satisfaction, isn't it? Here we are talking about things in samsara. Okay, we aren't talking about Buddhahood. Yeah, we're talking about things under the control of afflictions and karma. So don't, don't get that confused. Yeah. Okay, and the second point. So this is a good thing to really sit and think about. I mean, just go through one day and how much changed in one day. Reflecting on the impermanence of perishability. Well, actually, let's go back to that other one, the gross change. I mean, we just finished with, with uh, Derek Chauvin's trial. Do you realize 10 minutes in his life changed how many other people's lives as well as his own? Yeah. Other people, you know, we're talking, we talk a lot about gun violence now. You know, um, Dante uh, Wright, who got killed, 20-year-old kid, one bullet. The cop who, who killed him, you know, how long did that take, yeah, for an intention and the action and the death to occur? Very short. And yet... How many people's lives were forever changed by some event that took just a few seconds? The cop's life, totally, you know, she may get incarcerated for this. The mother is hysterical. 
The father is grieving. The nation is upset. Yeah? And so something so short can have such a profound effect. And when all those people woke up that morning, they didn't know that by the end of their day, their life would be totally changed. The cop had no idea. Yeah. The mother, Dante himself, nobody had any idea how radically their lives would change. And how it's affected all of us, how much our lives have changed because of it. Nobody woke up in the morning and thought, oh, this is what will happen by the evening. Yeah. So samsara is really unstable and unpredictable. You, you don't know what's going to happen. Okay, then the second one, reflecting on the impermanence of perishability leads to an inferential cognizer that notices that knows subtle impermanence. So here we contemplate that the coarse change we see could not occur without imperceptibly subtle moment-to-moment change. Nothing can stop functioning things from changing. Yeah? It's not like, okay, it's changing and, you know, we can push We feel like, okay, you know, this gong's just sitting there and I can push some button and it will not change. It'll just sit there. I'll chase, you know, I push that button. Nobody else will come to move it, you know, because we think moving is is the only way it's changing. No, you know, this thing, every small, tiny bit of it is changing all the time, you know. Because coming into existence, uh, you know, arising, abiding, and ceasing occur at the same time. Yeah. yeah. We want to press, you know, can I press the stop button for a while? You know, like uh, when you're meditating, you know, one of the meditations to to um, be aware of a thought before that thought arises, to be aware of the cause of the thought before the thought arises. Okay? How do you be aware of the cause of something that has not arisen yet? Well, that cause arises in the present moment. And what it gives rise to is the future moment. So I want to examine that cause. So I've got to stop time. Yeah, I want to be in the present moment so I can see exactly what is happening in the present moment. So, uh, you know, where's that button where I can stop it? Yeah, there's no button. We can't stop change. Yeah, you cannot find the present moment. It's totally unfindable. And yet we all go around, oh, be in the present moment, be in the present moment. Try finding the present moment. Kensi Rinpoche went through, a um, Geshe Tech Chok went through this beautiful 
description of, you know, okay, the present moment, this moment right here. But it has a beginning and a middle and a later part. So which is the pre- is, which is the present moment? Well, let's try for the middle part of the present moment. But that middle part also has a beginning and a middle and a later part. So what part of that middle part of the present moment is really the present moment? And once you go, I got it, where, was it, where did it go? Yeah, where did it go? It didn't go anywhere. Well, it got went somewhere, but find where it went to. Okay. So here we contemplate that the coarse change we see could not occur without imperceptibly subtle moment-to-moment change. Nothing can stop functioning things from changing. They need no other cause, they need no cause other than their arising to bring their disintegration. Perishing is in their very nature. We may think that a volcano erupts suddenly when in fact the pressure inside it has been building imperceptibly for a long time. Yeah, maybe even thousands of years, millions of years. We see the sunrise and set, but it goes across the sky moment by moment. Chandrakirti says, just as the consciousness is momentary, all other conditioned things have the same momentary nature as the mind, because nothing obstructs the perishing of all conditioned things as soon as they appear. There exists nothing that can obstruct the perishing. Yeah? That's one reason why you can't stop it. And second reason, because the impermanence of things depends only upon their arising. As soon as they come into existence, they're changing. We see arising as like, okay, arising. Yeah, they were permanent before, they arose, now they start changing. Okay? Kind of like, uh, you know, you get in your car, you put the key in, you pause, then you turn the ignition. You know, they arose, they stayed that way for a while, then they start changing, so, you know, I can stop them in there. Mm -mm. The impermanence of perishability also points to the multiplicity of situations in which we sentient beings find ourselves and to the diversity of our physical beauty, intelligence, wealth, fame, lifespans, contentment, and so forth. The vastness of these alternatives are conditioned by the countless and complex virtuous and non-virtuous karma we create not by chance, and not by the will of an external creator. By meditating on this, we develop the conviction that conditioned factors in one lifetime, specifically our uh, physical, verbal, and mental actions, bring about our experiences in future lives. Okay, 
So we look around and we wonder why things are so different. Yeah, they seem to maybe have the same causes, like twins, you know? They have the same genetic makeup. But they identical twins can grow up and look very different from each other, just even physically, let alone their, their mind being different. Because mm-hmm. there, there's so much variation in the causes and conditions. Then three, to understand the impermanence of separation, we reflect on the changeability of our personal situation and the separation from desirable circumstances that we experience without choice. We are healthy and then fall ill. We have freedom and then fall under the control of others. We have a happy family life, but then circumstances change and it evaporates. And we see this all the time, don't we? All the time. You just, you know, you read the the news and everything that's happening just in one day has so many different effects and so many things change. Yeah, in Ohio, they were giving uh, COVID shots to some of the inmates, and the people who were giving the shots got the dosage wrong, and they got more than one dosage. And then they noticed their their mistake, and uh, you know they called the the companies and said, "What do we do?" You know, because they had already given the shots, and they said, "Just monitored them for a couple of days and hope, you know, see if they're okay." So again, you know, nobody woke up that morning and and anticipated that happening. Are these are these structured in any sort of like more profound order, or are they kind of hmm. just all over? These ten are definitely structured so that they're going deeper. Just like the four attributes of of true dukkha, they're structured so that by understanding impermanence, that helps you understand dukkha, helps you understand you know empty, helps you understand selfless. So. Yeah, this is having the the same that same structure. This third one is more like applying that inferential course, or sorry, um, subtle impermanence to our personal experience. Yeah. Well, the other ones. Um, okay, two was an inferential cognizer. Yeah, I think this one is. Emph- I don't know that it's necessarily subtler but it's emphasizing the personal aspect of it more. Yeah. Because with the second one, you can get all hung up about how the the trees and the mountains are changing. Uh, but sometimes that doesn't hit you as much as if you think of yourself. Okay, then four, um, to reflect on the impermanence of the uh, dharmata, or nature of things, we consider that while we may not be experiencing the impermanence of change or the impermanence of separation in this moment, we will in the future. There is no way to continue whatever good circumstances we presently have, for change is 
uh, the nature of everything in samsara. Okay, and that's kind of sums the whole thing up. Then five, the impermanence of the present is the perishability and separation that we presently undergo. Contemplating this reinforces the above contemplations, for we see the perishability and separation are occurring in this very instant. Okay. So perishability was two, separation was three. So they are building on each other. These reflections on impermanence bring home the fact that every facet of our being and every aspect of our lives and our world is transitory and unstable. This leads to a sense of unease regarding life in cyclic existence. Because we want things to be stable and predictable. Yeah, we don't want to be hit with new things all the time that we can't control. Okay, so this is a reason to generate the aspiration for liberation or enlightenment. So contemplating the next three points, the three forms of dukkha, will increase our discomfort with remaining in samsara. Okay, so because things are impermanent, then they are unsatisfactory. So that's why impermanence comes before unsatisfactory. So six, here we're going through the, the three types of dukkha again. So the dukkha of pain is called the aspect of being undesirable because painful physical and mental experiences are unwanted. Still, they keep coming counter to our wish for happiness. Uh, the dukkha of change is called the aspect of fetters and bondage because even when our bodies and minds experience pleasure, that pleasure leads to the fetter of craving, which in turn gives rise to the bondage of birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Okay, then eight... The pervasive dukkha of conditioning uh, is called the factor of our welfare not being secure. Because even though we may experience a neutral feeling now, our aggregates are under the control of afflictions and karma. They possess the potential to experience the first two types of dukkha with the slightest change of circumstance. Yeah. Slightest change of circumstance. Now, people are healthy. They go into uh, public transporta transportation, yeah, breathe in there, and then they come, they get COVID, and then a few days later they're on the vent and then they're gone. Yeah, nobody had that in their calendar for what was going to happen. And it was just a small thing. You can't even see the COVID virus. Yeah, can't even see it. And you don't even know when, you, when was the moment that you were infected either. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, understanding impermanence leads to understanding dukkha. Birth in cyclic existence is unsatisfactory because it is permeated with unwanted change, aging, sickness, death, meeting with the disagreeable, separating from the desirable, and not getting what we want. Contemplating dukkha on the basis of understanding subtle impermanence jars our complacency. A deep sense of vulnerability arises because happiness and suffering are entirely at the whim of afflictions and karma. In our ignorant state, we have so little over these. So we can control affliction, uh, we can control the conditions that make karma ripen a little bit, we can control them. If our mind is awake, if we do not follow afflictions, if we make good choices, but if we're just operating on, you know, on automatic and doing what is comfortable and uh, what we desire, then very often we just put ourselves in circumstances that are prime for the ripening of destructive karma. Okay, then number nine. Yeah. Uh, the aspect of unobservability refers to not being able to observe or discern a real self that exists separate from the aggregates. Here we contemplate that there is no self over and above all instances of each of the aggregates. So there's, there's no uh, soul, there's no self, like the aggregates are here, that is kind of standing up here, yeah, above and beyond the aggregates. For example, when we say, I see, there is merely a visible object, the eye faculty, and an immediately preceding consciousness. Together, they cause a visual consciousness that perceives the object. That's all that's happening. But when we see something, do we think that's all that's happening? No, we view it with all sorts of meaning. You know, meaning and desirable or undesirable, and I want it and I don't want it, and this is what I have to do to get it and what I have to do to avoid it, and what, what will people think of me, and on and on and on, okay? But all that happened was there was an object, a sense, faculty, and a, and a previous moment of consciousness. Okay, I and mine are mere names, mere figures of speech. Come on. I and mine are mere figures of speech. No. I am here, and this is mine. And you better know it. Don't tell me this is a figure of speech. 
that my possessing this is a figure of speech, or that I as the person, I, sitting here, am a figure of speech. Come on. Yeah? Yeah? We feel like we're solid people, don't we? Yeah, there's a real self here that's in control. I'm not sure what it's in control of, but it's in control. <laughs> when we look, what does the, the I really control? But it sure feels like it's in control. The aggregates are not possessed by a real self. Oh, come on. There's a me. I own these aggregates. This is my body. It's not your body. And this is not just due to familiarity, like Shanti Deva tells me, you know. When Shanti, when I remember when we got to that part in chapter eight, and Shanti Deva says, it's just by familiarity that you cherish this body. And I said, Lama Yeshi, no, it's got to be more than familiarity, because when this something happens to this body, I'm the one who experiences pain. Nobody else does. It's not just familiarity, you know. I experience the pain. Lama didn't agree. <laughs> okay, the aggregates are not possessed by a real self. That's not real. Yeah, don't you own your aggregates? Aren't they yours? They're not somebody else's. Come on. Okay. Nor can a person be found among the aggregates. I'm in there somewhere. Because I'm not across the room, so I'm in here somewhere. Yeah. There is no observable self that creates karma and experiences its results. Then why are you telling me to create good karma and bad, and avoid bad karma if there's no person that creates karma? Why, why are you telling me this stuff? And there's no person who experiences the results, so why should I care? There is no findable self that circles in samsara or attains liberation. See, I told you so. Yeah, there's no me. So I don't create karma. I don't experience the result. This whole thing is a dream. That's all. Nothing more than that. Hmm? These conditioned aggregates are completely empty of a self. No, so nothing exists. There's no self. There's no me. There's no samsara. It's all very simple now. And then we go back to, but this is my body and my life and I want to be happy. Do you see the two extremes there? How we so easily bounce from one to the next and back again? Okay, number 10. The aspect of a lack of independence 
refers to the aggregates not being under the control of a self. Oh, come on. Yeah, look, I can lift my little finger. I lift my middle finger. I can control this body. The summer of my freshman year of college, I worked in a nursing home. And I worked with many people who had MS and, you know, kind of giving them treatment and everything. And I'd go home and I'd go like this and watch my hand move and go, why can I move this hand and they can't move their hand? Yeah. Well, I'm in control of this body, but I'm sure they feel that they're in control of their body too. But why can't they move their hand? Quite strange. The aggregates are dependent arisings that lack self-determination. They lack a controlling self. But I'm sure I can attain samadhi. I've just have been a little bit lazy, you know, but I'm sure if I decided tomorrow to really put in effort in it, I could control my, my mind right away and all the distractions would cease. Do you have that thought? <laughs> you don't? Really? You don't feel like if I just tried hard enough tomorrow, then I could get... Yeah, you have it, huh? No? <laughs> I don't have a thought about tomorrow, but I definitely have the thought about, oh, well, six months, it would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I just, just have to, you know, exert just a... You know, I can control. I can't control my moods. I just have, you know, I just haven't bothered to do it. But if I wanted to, I could do it. Yeah, yeah I can realize emptiness. I have all the instructions. I just, you know, I've just been too lazy. Yeah, so it all takes a little more effort. Boing, I'll get it. The understandings of impermanence, dukkha, emptiness, and selflessness evolve in that order. Subtle impermanence means the aggregates arise due to causes and conditions, specifically afflictions and karma. Those causes and conditions bring about the three types of dukkha, which give rise to craving and thus renewed cyclic existence. Understanding the pervasive dukkha of conditioning in particular leads us to examine the relationship between the aggregates and the self. And therefore, to understand emptiness and selflessness. As Dharmakirti points out, for this very reason, the Buddha taught dukkha through impermanence and selflessness. He taught dukkha through impermanence and selflessness through dukkha. So when we, we talk about the three characteristics highlighted in the Pali tradition, you know, 
First you have impermanence, then dukkha, then selflessness, okay? As that verse there explains. Why does true dukkha receive so much attention? It would be so much more pleasant to think of light, love, and bliss. However, encouraging us to contemplate dukkha is the best way for the Buddha to rouse us from our complacency so that we will take advantage of our amazing opportunity to practice the Dharma. Just as a person won't seek freedom if he is unaware that he is imprisoned or if he thinks prison is a comfortable environment, we will not seek liberation from cyclic existence without a clear awareness of what it is and why it is unsatisfactory. Deeply meditating on the above topics will energize us to turn away from the prison of samsara and pursue the path to nirvana. And then there's reflection, three questions. Reflect on Asanga's ten points one by one, making examples of each in your life. And two, focus on the conclusion that everything in cyclic existence is transient, unsatisfactory in nature, empty and selfless. And three, aspire to attain liberation. Okay. So, questions, comments? Yeah. If there is no real self, then who creates karma? The mere I. Okay. The I that exists by being merely designated. Yeah. That is the self that exists. That's the one that creates karma, that takes rebirth, that it goes from samsara to nirvana. And there's nothing more as a self than that. Is the mere I the one that makes decisions, like about opening and closing your hand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, when you look about making, look at what making a decision is, you know, we, if we say, oh, the mere eye is the one that makes the decision. We say that, but we think an inherently existent eye makes the decision. There's one me sitting in there, and it just, boing, makes the decision. No, to make a decision, what do you have? You have many, many different mental states. So many different mental factors and states and... Um, memories and conceptions and uh, inferences and correct assumptions. And you have a whole tangle of different things going on. And somehow a decision comes out of that. And when you try and find what the moment was when you made a decision... And what was the previous moment that caused that decision, that final cause for that decision to be made? Yeah, what are you going to point to? Never get out of samsara, you know, if it's just you practice. things happening. You practice. 
Yeah, practice is the same thing. Many, many causes and conditions coming together. Okay, and they bring they bring results. Did His Holiness use the phrase "mere figure of speech" on page fifty-six? Hmm. Mere figure of speech. He may have used that, or he may have just said mere designation. It's a mere designation. Or they often say it's, uh, it's a mere, um, yeah, it's, it's merely designated. It's a mere designation. Yeah. Or sometimes, you know, he'll say it's a convention. Yeah. These things just exist by convention, meaning we have we conceive of them and give them a name. I hope that's what the question meant, what that person was asking. Huh? Okay, okay. Yeah? Is your eye the source of emptiness? Emptiness doesn't have a source. Nothing created emptiness. Emptiness is just the nature of things. Could you explain the sentence on the top of page 57, and it starts with the three words on the bottom of 56, understanding the pervasive dukkha of conditioning? Mm-hmm. Okay. So understanding the pervasive dukkha of conditioning in particular leads us to examine the relationship between the aggregates and the self and therefore to understand emptiness and selflessness. Okay, so here, this is still part of this thing about we start with emptiness, with impermanence, and then we go to dukkha, and then we go to emptiness, and then we go to selflessness. So it's part of that whole thing, yeah. When we understand the pervasive dukkha of conditioning, yeah, we understand that we are under the control of afflictions and karma. Okay. And what is it that's under the control of afflictions and karma? Our aggregates and ourself. So what's the relationship between the aggregates and the self? Yeah. The self appropriates the aggregates. The self clings to the aggregates. Yeah, the aggregates are, you know, have the pervasive dukkha of conditioning. They're always changing. They're under the power of afflictions and karma. So how does this all relate to me? What's the relationship between the I and the aggregates? Yeah. And then that leads us to understand emptiness. And then that is leading us in the path of, in the direction of liberation. Okay? Because to, to realize emptiness or selflessness, what we're analyzing is what is the relationship, we start out analyzing anyway, the relationship between the aggregates and the self. Because that's, uh, that relationship will tell us uh, whether the I exists inherently or not, whether the I and you know is findable as one of as identical with one of the aggregates, 
as being the, the collection of the aggregates as being separate from the aggregates. So that leads us into the whole analysis of uh, that, that helps us to understand emptiness and selflessness and the actual nature of the self, of the I. Okay, then we will dedicate. And then tomorrow afternoon, we'll start the next section, Our Human Value. Yeah. And then from there, we go on to the true origins of dukkha. Okay.